This is episode 24 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this podcast, I talk about the life of Daisy White and her controversial friendship with Harry Houdini. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 24. Really fast, I want to announce we have a winner for my last contest. Yes, the Magic History Contest number four, which you may have forgotten about, because I kind of did. The question on the contest was, name the celebrity that once worked for Cuda Bucks. And the answer was comedian Joan Rivers. Uh, there, I actually had a number of correct guesses and uh, had one incorrect guess that people sent in. And I, as I said uh, about the contest, I was just going to pull a name among all of those that guessed correctly. And I did pull a name, and the name was Lance Rich. So, Lance, you'll be getting an authentic piece of magic history ephemera in the mail very shortly. And thank you, everyone that uh, played. I will have Magic History Contest number five coming up, but it won't be ready today. It'll probably be the next con- uh, the next episode. Um, I also want to mention really quick the upcoming Magic Collectors Expo taking place June 20th through 22nd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I really encourage you to go if you haven't already signed up. I'm sure it's going to be a great time. The big question, will I be going? No, but it's not because I don't want to. I just have a, happen to have a full week of shows that week, and I am going to have to miss it, unfortunately. And that's usually the case with every convention that happens in the summer. I'm usually fully booked, so I'm unable to attend. But um, hopefully you can attend. If you want to find out more about the Expo, just go to magiccollectorsexpo.com, and they have all the information there that you could possibly need about this upcoming Magic History Conference. I do want to uh, thank folks that have been sending me notes on the podcast. I really appreciate the positive comments. And I just noticed the other day that I have three reviews over on uh, the podcast on iTunes. So uh, I thought I'd read some of these reviews to you. The first one says, great podcast, five stars. My entire performing career has been centered around magic and the history of magic. This podcast is both entertaining and informative. I thought I knew a lot about magic history and have learned so much. And that's from Rick Magic One. I really appreciate you sending that, Rick. Here's another one. It says, again, great podcast, five stars. My two great interests are history and magic. So this is a great podcast for me. Dean Carnegie delves into some famous, infamous, and not so famous personalities who shaped magic from the 1800s to the present. Always something interesting there. And this is from uh, 1307 Templar. So thank you for uh, the great review. Also, another one is titled Excellent Five Stars. And it says, if you have an interest in magic or are a budding magician, then you will love this podcast. I find it to be exceptionally well done, informative and fun. Please keep up the great work. 
And that's from Steve Skirvin. And Steve, thank you so much for that uh, review as well. Thank you for everybody that's uh, been sending me notes, like I said. Really appreciate it. And uh, if you would like to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be awesome. Anytime you leave a review like that, it, it helps out in the rankings where, where I end up on, uh, on iTunes. So the more reviews, more five-star reviews I get, the better. So just, just so you know the reason behind everything. Before we get into today's podcast, I just want to ask if you happen to have uh, friends that are into magic, if you could tell them about the Magic Detective podcast, I'd really greatly appreciate it. I'm trying to build the, what do they call it, listenership for the podcast. So uh, any help you guys can give me, you guys and gals can give me, is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Now, about today's feature. I originally began my Daisy White research back in 2012, and I wrote a rather long blog article uh, about Daisy. And today's feature takes liberally from that original blog article, but also adds a lot of additional information that I didn't have at the time. And when I started working on this, I was sure this episode was going to be a short 15 minute podcast. But as it turned out, it's going to be a full episode because I've just I found out so much information. And it's information, I believe, which has never been revealed to the magic world before. So here we go. The first time I heard the name Daisy White was while watching the Houdini movie starring Paul Michael Glazer. Adrian Barbeau played the part of Daisy White, and in the movie she worked for Hardeen, and later she shacked up with Houdini while he was struggling over the death of his mother. This, of course, is a very fictionalized version of things, and as easy as it is to become enamored with Adrian Barbeau's portrayal of Daisy, I didn't really give Daisy much thought beyond that. And then, years later, I came across this statement. Houdini only ever loved two women, his mother and Daisy White. Now that is a quite, quite an eye-opening statement, especially given the way the legend of Houdini has been portrayed. And by the way, that statement came from Maurice Zolotow, who was a show business biographer. His statement was from a review he wrote in the New York Times for the book Houdini, The Untold Story by Milbourne Christopher. Needless to say, that was all it took to cement my curiosity and send me on a search for the actual story. Now, the search for Daisy White has not been an easy one. Her real name was not Daisy White. I actually discovered that she had four different names. Gertrude Nickerson, Nellie Mae Nickerson, Hattie Daisy White, and a fourth, which I'll share with you in just a moment. It appears that she was likely from Cambridge, Massachusetts. She was born in 1881. She was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. G. Nickerson of Boston and renamed Nellie Mae Nickerson. The name Gertrude Nickerson was a stage name she adopted to work in musical theater and in vaudeville. She was a pianist and a singer, and she was also a music teacher in New York City. Apparently, throughout her adult life, she had been searching for her real mother, though she had no name and barely any clues. The one thing she did remember was the name of the nurse that cared for her when she was young. The nurse's name was Esther Saunders. She hunted down Mrs. Saunders only to find that she had moved out of the country only a day before. So Gertrude set sail for New Brunswick to locate the nurse Saunders. When she finally tracked her down, the first thing the nurse said was, You are Elizabeth White. 
Bingo. Daisy White's real name is Elizabeth White. The story of her birth is detailed in an April 1906 article that appeared in the Boston Herald. The headline of the article reads, New York music teacher searches for unknown rich Boston parent. And I'll try to give you a really simple version of the events. Uh, Daisy's parents, her real parents, were not married. In fact, they both came from wealthy families, and her father was married already and had a family of his own. At age two, Daisy was taken from her home and put into a nursery for wealthy families. By age four, she was adopted by the Nickersons, who raised her. In the, uh, the newspaper article, Daisy claims she was kidnapped, though I'm not sure I understand when that happened or how that happened. It sounds like the whole thing was orchestrated by the parents to avoid um, a scandal, so to speak. Now, if we go back to our meeting with the nurse, Mrs. Saunders, that woman was not willing to give over any information other than to say it was true she had been kidnapped. Again, kind of confusing, but there's a silver lining. Daisy's birth mother read the article that appeared in 1906 and eventually got in touch with Daisy. Now, I've got more on the birth mother later in the podcast. Now, how did Daisy White get into magic initially is a bit of a mystery. She apparently worked for Surveilly Roy at one point. Uh, the book Whaley's Who's Who says that she learned magic as an assistant to Frank Ducrow and then later became a demonstrator at Martinka's Magic Shop, which was actually Hornman's Magic Shop at the time. It's unclear, though, her actual path into magic as several sources give different accounts. One thing is for sure, she was the chief demonstrator at Hornman's Magic Shop, and she was also an assistant to Frank Ducrow in his stage act. Frank owned Hornman's Magic Shop. Uh, there are a couple interesting stories about her work at Hornman's. This first one, by the way, the, the shop was located on West 34th Street in New York City. And one day, I love this story, one day Max Malini enters the shop while Daisy's working behind the counter. And in typical Malini fashion, he leans over and stealthily cuts off a clump of Daisy's famous red hair. And before she even has time to respond, Max makes this clump of hair vanish and it apparently reappears back on her head, perfectly restored. And of course, there's no record of how hard Daisy slapped Melanie after that, but we can only imagine. Another story involves a young John Scarney coming into the shop to meet Frank Ducrow for magic lessons. Daisy again was working behind the counter, and she introduces herself, and she kept the young Scarney company until Frank arrived. No one knew. Uh, who Scarney was at the time. He was very young. Finally, Frank's, Frank arrived, and he and John Scarney went into the back room to start their first magic lesson. And to Frank's surprise, John Scarney was a little unimpressed with the technique that Frank was teaching with cards. He asked if there was possibly something else he could learn, something other than cards. And Ducrow, somewhat puzzled, asks, you know, what's the problem? Don't you like the card tricks? Scarney told him, well, actually, um, I've already learned a great deal from a, a professional card mechanics. I'm sure that was probably the first time they ever heard that term, card mechanic. Curious, Ducrow asked if he could see some of these mechanic tricks, whatever they were. Scarney then began to demonstrate several out-of-this-world magic effects with playing cards, and Frank was blown away and quite elated. He yelled for Daisy to join him, and they and she came back, and they watched John Scarney do magic. 
<laughs> effect after effect for hours. And Ducro told Scarney that he had to meet Houdini and he set up a, a time for them to meet. And the, the night of the meeting, which was also at the shop, Houdini showed up with Jim Collins, his right-hand man. There were also another uh, number of other magicians there as well. And the group all went back to the back room and Frank wouldn't let Daisy come to the back room though. He made her stay up front uh, in case any customers came in. And that had to be terribly frustrating. At first I thought it was like a typical boys club attitude, but uh, the more I thought about it, it was Daisy was an employee. So, you know, it made sense that she had to stay up front. It was unfortunate. Uh, Scarney, by the way, amazed everyone, including Houdini. Now, by all accounts, Daisy White exuded sex appeal, though I'm not sure that it's what they called it back then, but she did. She had a habit of wearing low-neck dresses and was known to lean over the counters at the magic shop while doing magic demonstrations, giving the mostly male clientele quite an eyeful and no doubt selling out all the inventory in the process. The book Masters of Mystery, also known as Houdini and Conan Doyle by Christopher Sanford, has this description of Daisy. Houdini's voluptuous former assistant, Daisy White, whose duties had sometimes called for her to parade up and down the stage in an overfull dress while the illusionist prepared his next trick in the background. Oh, and in case I hadn't mentioned it, she apparently worked for Houdini as well. But before I explore that, let me share this little tidbit with you. Back in the 1920s, Guy Jarrett, the eccentric illusion designer, hired Frank Ducrow to present a collection of Jarrett's illusions at the Idle Hour Playhouse in New York. Daisy White was the assistant for this. It appears the show played one single date, but the unique illusions of Jarrett's were actually photographed with Daisy White in them. These photographs later appeared in the pages of his incredible and controversial book on illusion called simply Jarrett. He referred to Daisy as 118 pounds, but with, um, well, let's just say he said she was very sexy. That, that should clean it up. In 1922, Daisy was doing double duty at the National Conjurers Association First Entertainment of the Year. She worked with two different performers. The first one, she appeared out of a crystal box while she was assisting Harry Lindaberry. And I'm going to read the entire description from the May 22nd edition of the Sphinx magazine of the second performer, the second routine. That second performer, his name was J.S.F., which is spelt J-A-Y-E-S-S. E-F-F. -F. And here is that story. The apparent severing of a living person while the latter is to all appearances tightly wedged in a narrow box has attracted considerable attention of late, and on this special occasion, the NCA was indeed fortunate in having presented its own Theatre de Mysterie what is, in all probability, the last word in sawing illusions. The oblong box used on this occasion was but a trifle higher inside than the subject, the ever-obliging Miss Daisy White, and its inner sides were furnished with slots or grooves for the introduction later of glass plates and giant-sized, though genuine, Gillette razor blades. Although finished inside and out, the box was neither painted nor stained, nor were its supporting pieces. Miss White, the willing victim, was requested to step into the box, which, at the time, was stood on end. 
Cords securely tied to her wrists were then pushed through the slots in the side of the box and their ends so knotted on the outside they could not slip through. Sufficient lengths of cords on the outer sides were in readiness to be held by later volunteers. Upon Mrs. White's arms being pinioned close to the inner sides of the box and the box laid flat upon its wooden support, a plain wooden cover, slotted to permit the introduction of the sheets of glass and razor blades, was firmly screwed down on the box. This cover was also padlocked at each of its four corners. Next followed the introduction of the huge razor blades, one by one until six had been distributed evenly, dividing the inside of the box into seven compartments, each measuring about eight by 14 inches. Next followed the introduction singly of two heavy sheets of plate glass, slowly pushed down lengthwise, though in opposite directions of the steel blades, into the box. A mental picture of the inside of the box at this time would show it divided into five 8 by 14 inch compartments and four still smaller ones. Just which one Miss White had squeezed herself into was left to the audience to figure out. In any event, after the box had been slowly sawed in two and its two halves drawn apart, Miss White was found just as whole and sound as when she originally entered it. But then her past experience with noted illusionists makes her specially suited to this work. That, my friends, is a description of the Selbit sawing, in case you didn't recognize it, but I thought it was very cool that Daisy White was doing the Selbit sawing. And now back to Daisy White apparently working for Houdini. I say apparently because I can't quite seem to track down when she worked for Houdini or even where. Now, I have been able to find uh, many SAM events where Houdini was present and Daisy had volunteered to play the piano. SAM, for those of you that don't know, is the Society of American Magicians. Um, by all accounts, she was an excellent piano player, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and volunteered to provide music for all the SAM live events in New York City. At one point, she even took off a week from Hornman's Magic Shop to play the piano for the Ziegfeld Follies during a week of long rehearsals that they were involved in. Certainly, she and Houdini knew each other. She worked at the magic shop. Houdini visited often. She was a member of the SAM. They likely ran into each other a lot. According to the book Houdini, His Legend and His Magic by Doug Henning, he once helped Daisy out of some financial trouble as he had helped out literally hundreds of others throughout his life. But as for wearing some sort of semi-revealing outfit and walking back and forth across the stage while Houdini prepared his next trick, I'm not really buying that because it doesn't appear to be, it doesn't really appear to be Houdini's style. Now we know Houdini died unexpectedly in 1926. After his death, his ever-faithful wife discovered a safe in the basement containing love letters from women who had fallen for her husband over the years. Among these were some rather hot and heavy letters that came from Daisy White. Bess had a clever way of confronting the women. She invited them over her house for lunch, and as they were leaving, she handed each one of them their letters back, tied up nicely with a ribbon. Daisy White, however, was confronted by Bess in person. As one might imagine, Bess was irate. But Daisy convinced Bess that nothing happened between her and Harry. And this must have been the case because Daisy and Mrs. Houdini remained friends. Now, I had read in a number of biographies that Bess opened a tea room called Mrs. Houdini's Rendezvous in New York City for a period of time. 
the location of which was where Rockefeller Center is today. The Secret Life of Houdini by William Kalush mentions a speakeasy which was run by both Bess and Daisy White. From 1920 to 1933, alcohol was illegal in the U.S., and a speakeasy, for those of you that don't know, was basically an illegal barroom. The Secret Life of Houdini goes one step further, referring to the speakeasy as a brothel. This information apparently from Arthur Leroy. Searching further, I found that Charles Reynolds was told this by Arthur Leroy, who was a regular customer. So I'm more inclined to think that the speakeasy had its share of professional women, if you catch my meaning, rather than being an actual brothel. I don't honestly know if the tea room and the speakeasy were one in the same. The tea room apparently made no money because Bess wouldn't allow down-on-their-luck performers to pay. But a speakeasy, well, I can't imagine that going out of business during Prohibition. Unless they were shut down by the authorities, um, no record exists of Bess and Daisy going to jail as far as I could find, so that's not likely. It will just remain an open question until I can dig further into that. Next comes Arthur Ford. He was the reverend of the first spiritualist church in New York. He befriended Daisy White. His charismatic charm won over Daisy, and she became a spiritualist and even joined his church. On page 149 of the Houdini Code Mystery by William Rauscher, there's a photo of an invitation card for a lecture being presented at Carnegie Hall by Daisy White, which reads, You are cordially invited to attend a private demonstration given by Miss Daisy White to expose the comparative virtues of modern magic, mind-reading, and spiritualism. The date on the card was April 1929. Arthur Ford apparently also won over Bess Houdini. Both The Secret Life of Houdini and The Houdini Code Mystery say that Bess and Ford were dating, though very discreetly. They met after a lecture debate on spiritualism between Howard Thurston and Arthur Ford, in which Ford easily won the debate. On February 8, 1928, Ford gives Bess a message from Houdini's mother. Eleven months later, Ford, through his spirit contact Fletcher, produces a message from Houdini himself. Bess announced to the media it was the authentic and genuine message that she and her late husband had agreed upon. And then all hell broke loose. The media began debunking the whole affair. Dunninger, the mentalist, got involved and pointed a finger at Daisy White, saying she gave the information to Ford. One source said that Daisy claimed she knew the code, as did a lot of magicians, but she didn't know what the message was. The, the UPI story that appeared in newspapers of the time said that Daisy knew Arthur Ford, but never discussed Houdini in that quarter or never, never had he said anything in regards to the Houdini code before his death. Uh, Ford also denied that Daisy had anything to do with it. However, The Secret Life of Houdini says... When some of Houdini's friends threatened to expose Daisy White's involvement, she threatened to go public with her sexual relationship with Houdini, and she had one or more witnesses ready to vouch for her story. Now, which was it really? Did she know the code? Did she give it to Ford? Did she have an affair with Houdini after all? She did at least tell the New York World newspaper that she knew the code, but not the message. So she very well may have given him the code. Yet in another paper, uh, she called the whole idea that she knew the code nutty. Bess said there was no way that Daisy had Houdini's confidence enough to have even been given the code, but I'm not sure that 
well, I'm not sure how secret the code was. Houdini had given the code as a wedding gift to Al Flosso years before, and Bess had printed the code in the Kellogg biography on Houdini, so the code was available to anybody. I think the bigger question is, did Houdini actually cheat on Bess with Daisy, or did he just have close relationships with her and other women? It's hard to say. It's, it's so easy to want to paint him into a modern-day box and apply today's standards to Houdini. We know he had some sort of relationships with other women and pretty good chance with Daisy as well. But whether it went beyond like a flirtatious manner uh, into something more, we can never know. Unless, of course, some long lost diary of Daisy's turns up like the one that Charmaine London kept. By February of 1928, Daisy had left the employee of Hornman's Magic Shop and went offering her magic demonstrator skills as a freelance artist, and she was soon demonstrating magic for Liggett's Drugstore at the Grand Central Depot. In 1933, Daisy was getting work as a numerologist. She had a business card that read, Science of Sex and Numbers. That's a doozy. Um, In 1938, Daisy also gets involved in a court case over her mother's estate in Massachusetts. The article on this event is the motherload of information on Daisy's life. The Boston Globe, January 5th, 1938, reports that she goes by the name Hattie Daisy White, and her true birth mother was Eliza G. Letter. The paper says, following her birth, she was cared for by a nurse until she was four or five years old, and then she was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Nickerson of Provincetown, Massachusetts. The adopted family renamed her Nellie Mae Nickerson. Her mother, who was unmarried at the time Daisy was born, her mother's maiden name was White. Daisy reveals in the court testimony that her true birth mother revealed herself in 1906, and together they concocted the story that they would be known as aunt and niece. And in 1938, her true birth mother had died, so Daisy was contesting the will. She was eventually awarded one half of the estate. After 1938, Daisy vanishes from magic literature. In fact, she vanishes altogether. I believe Daisy moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, and lived there until her death on January 6, 1955. Daisy's mother was born in Canada, so it's very likely they all had relatives there. That, my friends, is the most up-to-date information I have on Daisy White. I will tell you. I had this podcast all written and ready to record when I stumbled upon the 1906 article that revealed so much, and I had to go back and rewrite quite a bit. But I never would have found that article without knowing that Daisy had once gone by the name Gertrude Nickerson. That tiny bit of info led to the big reveal of her true name, Elizabeth White. And I don't know where the name Hattie or even Daisy comes from, though I assume Daisy again was a nickname. Daisy White has a good ring and is easily remembered. I continue to search for snippets on her life, as she was a fascinating character in the world of magic, even if her affair with Houdini was more gossip than reality, and we don't know. It could have been, it could have been very true. We just don't know. Uh, There's still plenty that's unknown. For example, when did she first meet Houdini? Don't know. Uh, Was she going by the name Gertrude Nickerson at that time? Don't know. When did she switch to the name Daisy White? don't know. What was her legal name? That's a big question. I I think it must have been Nellie Mae Nickerson, but you can see where all this gets very confusing. I tried to find Daisy in census records, but she doesn't show up anywhere. And again, by what name? It's hard, you know, 
I can't find her. Please note the podcast cover for this episode. Please go take a look at that because you're going to see a picture of Daisy White, Gertrude Nickerson, at the age of 25. And if you go over to my blog, you can see a full image of that, which shows her at age four or five as well. Um, granted, it's a grainy kind of picture, hard to see, but the picture has not been seen in over 113 years. My friends, that's going to do it for episode 24 of the Magic Detective podcast. Thank you once again for listening. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already done so. Until next time, my name is Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Have a great week.